Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Tonight on Battleground, the energy transition delusion. I'll be joined from New York by Mark P. Mills, who says that removing coal and gas from our energy system just simply is not feasible anytime soon. He urges Australians to give up the idea that such a transition is possible. I'm Nick Cater, the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre and the pre presenter of Battleground on ADH-TV, the home of smart conversation grounded in common sense. Battleground streams every Friday at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. It's available on demand 24 hours a day, but via the ADH-TV app, which you can download anytime on your smartphone or smart TV. Just go to your app store or find out more at www.adh.tv. For those of us who worry about the increasing size of government, this week's federal budget was troubling, to put it mildly. We learned that Anthony Albanese has plans to govern in the time-worn Labour manner by taxing heavily, spending lavishly and clipping the ticket along the way. Forget all the talk about fiscal discipline and preparation for troubled times. The numbers speak for themselves. Over the next four years, the federal government will tax you more heavily than any government in history. $2.4 trillion in taxes in all all of which will come from income, most of which, sorry, will come from income tax. That means that the government has increased the amount it draws from the economy in taxation at three times the rate of inflation over the last decade. Which begs the question, how on earth do they spend it? Well, quite effortlessly as it happens. This year, for the 14th year in a row, the government intends to spend more money than it collects, adding to the balance adding the balance to the national debt. And it intends to do so next year, and the same the year after that, and the year after that. Net debt will rise from 516 billion this year to 766 billion in 2026. Meanwhile, back in the real world, Australian families face the toughest time in decades. Mortgage rates will rise to around 6% by Christmas, increases engineered by the Reserve Bank of Australia with the deliberate intention of inflicting pain. Apparently, the imperative to reduce spending only applies to individuals and businesses, not to governments. To sum it up, this is a great budget for Canberra where almost everyone either works for the government or sells goods and services to people who work for the government, and almost everyone votes for either Labor or the Greens. Everyone else, however, is in a world of pain. The cost of living will rise about 7% this year, according to Treasury, which habitually underestimates inflation, by the way. So you can bet your last cent it'll be higher than that for longer than that. 
budget forecast predicts, pro predictions are often wrong. Energy bills are forecast to rise by 56% in the next two years. That's a punishing blow for most small businesses. Think of the number of fridges, for example, running in your local deli. Crippling is crippling for families as well. Petrol prices will increase together with food, just about everything, in fact. So Jim, Tre Treasurer Jim Chalmers probably wasn't wrong when he said this is going to be a bread and butter budget. Bread and butter will be all the average family can afford to eat by Christmas. To give Chalmers his due, he did at least give the impression that he was embarrassed at the rise in some of the government spending. But there was nothing he could do, he said. The spending was locked in. The cost of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, for example, will rise from $29 billion this year to $51 billion in 2026. $51 billion for the NDIS. That's more than the government spends on primary health care. Uh, spending it on a scheme that didn't even exist 10 years ago until a Labour government invented it. The Treasurer says we're faced with structural budget deficit, which is another way of saying that the government is unable to pay for its current funding on the current uh, commitments to revenue. The solution to that structural budget reform is obvious. It means making hard decisions about spending priorities, separating the must-haves from the nice-to-haves, just as any family would do, making trade-offs. In other words, doing the job we elect politicians to do. After almost six months in government, however, the Alpine, Anthony Albanese's government isn't doing any of that. It's simply business as usual, throwing money at every problem, just as it did in education in the last term of government, for instance. And we know what happened there. The amount we spend on every pupil has risen and the academic performance of the average pupil has fallen, measured by reliable international performance tests. Chalmers holds the best hand dealt to any incoming treasurer since Wayne Swan, as it happens. He inherited a budget that had been running in a monthly surplus since last November. And it turns out the government can expect some $140 billion more in revenue over the next four years than it had been expecting. Chalmers' moment of economic sunshine won't last long, however. The deterioration of the US economy, the slowdown in growth in China, and uh, the underlying structural problems in the Chinese economy suggest that these are going to be the last pleasant surprises the Labour can expect on the, the economy before the 2025 election. So Labour must break the habits of a lifetime and govern in a manner that suits the times. Chalmers must recognise that the Rudd-Gillard knee-jerk response of throwing money at everything that came its way is not only fruitless, but dangerous in a period of inflation. Amanda Stoker joins me from Brisbane to pick over the entrails of Jim Chalmers' first budget. Amanda, uh, all of us from time to time fall for the temptation of putting off hard decisions in our private lives. Uh, but if the economic winds are turning as sharply as Chalmers says, he should have done much more, surely, to bring the government's spending into line with revenue. It's not the thing we can keep putting off. I think that's right. And if ever you had a case for making those tough decisions. It's in a difficult economic climate facing high levels of inflation and it's in circumstances where they are at the start of a term of government. If they're not prepared to make difficult decisions straight after an election, then there's no chance of them having as the next election approaches. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? Blind Freddie can see that, that you can't go spending more than you're, you're earning 
forever. You might be able to do it in the short term, but then you get into what they call a structural deficit. And with you know, the cost of things rising, NDIS, for instance, the obvious example, 29 billion this year, it'll be 51 billion in four years time. That 51 billion, that's, that's bigger than we spend on primary healthcare, right? And, and that's on a scheme that didn't exist until Labor invented it, which is fine. It's a good scheme. It delivers a lot of benefit, but everybody involved knows it's wasteful. Surely at some point, a government has got to bite the bullet on that and it would be better that a Labor government did it. I think that's right. There's um, there's a lot to be said for the idea that there are some types of um, cuts that are almost better done by a Labor government because um, they don't attract the same kind of criticism that could make them gun-shy in the same way that um, coalition governments do. But the fact is, no matter what your political colour is, you're, you're here to make the calls that serve the nation at a time of need. Um, if not now, then when? This budget exposes the Labor government as what we have known it always to be, and that is a high-taxing, high-spending government. Taxes are now back up um, to where they were uh, for the... Uh, time before the coalition brought in tax cuts, higher than ever, in fact. And the spending that's gone out the door means that that's been completely absorbed and we've still gone into the red. A dear friend of mine, Julia, waves, shout out to you, um, did some maths last night and said the newborn baby she's just had will be 28 before the budget is back in the black on the basis of this budget. That's no way to run a country and it's not doing the right thing by this generation or baby James's generation. <laughs> well, I guess I guess she, she could at least look forward to a bit more relief on um, on childcare, a bit more on that. Providing that is that she and her husband don't earn more than three hundred and fifty thousand a year. That's the cap, the upper cap, which seems to me to be generous to say the least. But anyway, she she can get that. But I wonder if that's enough right now. Inflation's rising. Mortgage rates are going through the roof. Uh, you know, under those circumstances, aren't most households, you know, most households who don't actually have young children uh, in childcare or aren't seeking parental, par you know, family leave, won't they be saying, look, what's in it for us? You, it doesn't seem to be right that you're just favouring a certain group of people who seem to be quite wealthy. I think that's right. The, the problem is all households are feeling the pinch of inflation, but this budget doesn't really do much to help with that hardship. The big winner out of the budget, as you've mentioned, is the childcare centre industry. Now, that will help that industry, uh, but arguably it doesn't help the people who are working in that industry right now who have been complaining for some time of the need for pay rises. And what we know about increases in childcare subsidies is that it simply makes the daily cost rise and households don't feel the benefit. And so even if we say that Labor are going to pick this winner, and you know, I, I think we should actually be having a much more broad discussion about the need to support the range of choices that women and families make about how they want to raise children um, rather than just insisting everybody be shipped off to a childcare centre. But even if you accept that, it won't deliver the meaningful assistance with that rise in the cost of living in the long term for those childcare using families. 
Well, you make a very good point there. I mean, by giving, they are inflationary. By giving those sort of subsidies, they are inflationary, albeit in a small section of the economy, the uh, the child the childcare mega industrial complex. Okay, so that's fine. But it it makes the very important point that you governments who spend money are fueling inflation, and the best thing governments can do is to calm their own spending if they want. I mean, after all, that's what the Reserve Bank's asking families to do. It's inflationary. Yes. And the other big winner out of the budget uh, was the announcement that says there will be a big investment with the help of state governments in social and affordable housing. But let's think about what this means for us as a broader society. Even if it's delivered, it promises to deliver a number of social and affordable houses that's approximately the same as happened um, in the free market over the period leading up to now. Um, so query whether or not it's actually going to move the dial. But even if it does, it's driving Australians towards a system of um, permanent lifetime rental rather than allowing Australians the opportunity to access that wonderful um, aspiration to own their own home, which we know brings with it um, the shift in mindset and the change in priorities that makes people um, become really strong contributing members of broader society. And if I were designing policy that was about bringing out and offering the very best to Australians, it'd be about making home ownership accessible rather than simply getting people into a lifetime of affordable renting. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, we have to do something. We have to do something to try and assist young people, uh, you know, buy homes because that assists family formation. It builds families. That's important. But I'm not sure this is the way to do it. And, and as Michael Kroger pointed out last night on TV, there was a very obvious problem here. OK, you get the you get the money and the incentive to buy the house or build the house, but there are no builders out there. You know, we've got tremendous skill shortages and uh, I suspect they're going to find the same problems that Jacinta Ardern did when she tried a similar scheme. I think that's right. And the problem that has been observed by um, governments and the construction industry, when governments pour a whole lot of money into, for instance, infrastructure development, um, the impact is that the cost of those infrastructure projects goes through the roof as competition for skills and supplies and machinery really gets drawn upon. The same thing's happening in the construction industry and we can expect the cost of this so-called social and affordable housing to rise as that inflationary effect of that higher skill demand comes through. So it might be another example of well-meaning governments delivering the worst possible value for taxpayers when the private sector is capable of doing it better if only you'll release the land to make it so. Yes, well-meaning governments. Uh, isn't that uh, so common? Um, so, so finally, look, I mean, I won't ask you to give him marks out of 10, but is there anything in, in this that encourages you or does it just point to a Labor government that's just really content to manage for the next three years and not actually make any of the deep changes that we need to do in this country? Look, I don't. I think it's squibbed the opportunity to do some really important long-term structural reform. Um, what I think is most 
noticeable about this budget is that it talks a lot about families and it talks a lot about the cost of living. It talks a lot about housing affordability. But once you start to look at the meat that they say they're putting on the bones, it's actually pretty empty on that front. It's a an absolute classic tax and spend. Um, and the spend is going into um, the interests of unionised workforces, of big super, um, of their mates in the movement. And, um, you know, the day changes, but good old Labor stays the same. And um, I think that's a really wasted opportunity for Australians at a time when they really needed courage. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you again for your contribution, as always, on Battleground. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks so much. Well, as I said in the last episode of Battleground, you don't have to be a climate sceptic to conclude that the government's energy policy is bonkers. Energy Minister Chris Bowen has a single-minded obsession about what he calls renewable energy. Chris Bowen is intent on transitioning from our energy system powered by hydrocarbons to one powered by wind, wind turbines, solar panels and batteries. He reckons that 82% of Australia's energy can be generated this way. The government's target of 43% reduction in carbon emissions compared to 2005 was locked into legislation last month, so we've got to get there somehow. Like it or loathe it, the government's legally, legally obliged now to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 116 megatons over the next eight years and another 350 megatons in the 20 years after that to get to net zero. Well, the government could look like Look at new technology to accomplish this goal, of course. Small modular reactors, for example, zero emissions, totally reliable, suppliers of dispatchable, synchronised energy 24 hours a day, but it's not. This government's going a different route. It plans to install 47 megawatt wind turbines every month. That's more than one a day from now until 2030, each one as tall as the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It wants to install more than 22,500 watt solar panels every day for the next eight years. 2.4 for every woman and child and man in this country. All this supposes, of course, that we can buy the panels in the first place. Polysilicon wafers are in short supply and 95% of them come from China. China, yes, the Saudi Arabia of solar panels. And so to get the power from these energy farms to our homes, the government plans to double the size of the electricity grid. So all in all, we're talking tens of billions of dollars in investment, if not hundreds of billions. And all this, the government claims, will bring the price of energy down. Well, will it? Mark P. Mills is a policy analyst at the Manhattan Institute who's seen similar energy transmission proposals like this unfold, unfold in Europe and the United States. We get more than a hint of his conclusions from the title of his recent paper, The Energy Transition Delusion, A Reality Reset. I'm delighted to say Mark P. Mills joins me now from New York. Mark, welcome to Battleground. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you. Well, if I can share with you a little local political background, our government here uh, campaigned at the last election with a promise to cut $275 off the average household electric bill. From, right. And it's going to do this apparently by transitioning from coal generation to renewables. Do you know of any jurisdiction in the world where a switch from hydrocarbons to energy generated from renewables has made energy bills cheaper? 
No, in fact, we can state the inverse. Every place, every state in the United States, every country in Europe where the share of electricity from wind and solar has increased has led to higher cost electricity for consumers and higher cost energy in general. And unfortunately, uh, generally ignored is lower reliability and critically, which is what Europe's discovering now, lower resilience. And resilience is different than reliability. Their ability to surge energy for unexpected reasons, in this case, a loss of supply in Europe from Russia. But you can lose supply from other, other, other uh, causes. In fact, most people have forgotten or didn't know that last fall, there was a massive wind lull across the North Sea. These things happen all over the world. They're called wind droughts. So massive areas, a continent size, where you have no wind for days or a week or 10 days. This happens predictably in the sense it always happens, but it happens unpredictably in the sense we don't know exactly when it happens. But when that does happen, you have no wind, therefore no energy from wind turbines for days, maybe a week. You have to do something else to keep the lights on. So you surge the production of electricity from usually natural gas plants, which causes crazy increases in gas prices and electricity prices. That's what happened last fall in Europe, 1,000% increase in uh, weekly bills, which of course has a huge impact on the annual bills. The wind did come back after 10 days, and sort of the effect of that sort of drifted into history, but it'll happen frequently. And the more wind and solar dependence a grid has, the greater the impact, of course, on the, uh, on the grid and on consumers. Well, so let me ask the question I think you just answered, but I'm gonna ask you a very direct way. Do you know of any energy system in the world that runs with 82% of power generated by wind, solar, and batteries? Uh, no, uh, the, the closest we can get is uh, Germany, which is a pretty high percentage. Uh, I think they achieved last year something approaching 60% of the delivered energy uh, in the electric grid from wind and solar. It's quite remarkable. So that, but the, the country overall is still 70% dependent on hydrocarbons. So it's important to, to, you know, for people to separate these two markets, right? Obviously keeping the lights on, computers running, homes uh, powered with, uh, with everything that we have in our appliances requires electricity, but the entire industrial sector runs on natural gas, coal, and uh, even oil. And so that doesn't switch to electricity. So the, the idea that we get the majority of energy from wind and solar is chimerical. It hasn't happened. It's not impossible. Let's just be clear. I mean, the engineering, there's a funny thing in engineering and in physics. Some things are impossible. Some things are just stupid. <laughs> it's, 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 it's impossible to fly to the moon with an airplane because there's no air. So that it's not, you know, it's not stupid. You can't do it. Uh, you, you, you could fly a helicopter from Australia to the United States. It's very difficult, pretty stupid, mm. very expensive, but you could do it. A lot of refueling, very inconvenient. So imagining all grids running in wind, solar, and batteries is actually not impossible. It's a really dumb idea because it requires such massive expenses, massive overbuilding. It's a crushing impact on the economy. The scale of, of resources required is off the charts huge, but it's physical resources, and the cost of it is stunning. And it's in fact so great 
that in the short periods that people are talking about, which is in the next five to 10 years, these massive increases in wind and solar battery construction, I think it's pretty reasonable to say that it's close to impossible to build that fast. So the impossibility eventually, a century from now, okay, I'm not, I don't have a problem with a lot of things happening in a century, but in the next decade or two, uh, getting to 80% wind and solar on, on grids in Australia, Canada, and Europe, United States, it's not going to happen. In fact, the whole separate issue is not just money. We're talking about increasing costs of energy and electricity for consumers, not by a little bit, like by 50% a year, by hundreds of percent. The United States enjoys uh, uh, average electric costs one third of that in Europe, one third. Uh, this is at a stunning advantage for its consumers and its industries. And what's happening is that uh, countries in Europe are starting to deindustrialize, and their businesses are moving to places like the United States or to, to Asian countries or to South America or even Africa, because you, you simply can't function and compete at the prices that are imposed on markets by this uh, really unfortunate goal of rapidly eliminating hydrocarbons. It just can't be done in any sensible way and can't be done in the way people imagine, which is to say, Building the quantity of wind turbines and solar arrays and batteries, just as one example, requires a quantity of copper, just copper, never mind the exotic metals we've heard, rare earths, which by the way are not rare. They have rare properties. Yeah. They're not rare. We, we just choose not to mine them. We've chosen to shine to mine them. But the more interesting question are basic metals like copper and aluminum and nickel are utterly critical to building the machines that are called renewable energy machines. And what's generally lost in this discussion that seems to be totally absent from political recognition is that the quantity of these minerals you need to deliver the same unit of energy is between 300 and 3,000% greater than using conventional hydrocarbon machines. Mm. The mm. quantity of metals are so great that we know for a fact, and this is, this is not speculation, that the world is not now mining enough metals nor planning to mine enough metals. There's no, there's no plans announced or, co or contemplated on planet Earth to produce enough just copper to build a quantity of batteries and wind turbines and solar arrays. They're imagined by all the so-called uh, transitionists, if well, you like. Well, let's, let's push this one step further. Lithium, lithium you talk about, lithium in your article, lithium being essential for batteries, and it's also used, I gather, for other yeah. things in the, in, the, in the process. Now, lithium, the whole world now is chasing lithium because every you yeah. know, decent country in the world said it's 2030 target, they're all rushing to get there, they're all going down this, or most of them are going down the yeah. similar route. Uh, so it just is not available. And um, we were promised, of course, that the price of electric vehicles, for instance, would come down because the batteries would be mass produced, uh, but instead they're going up. I mean, the cost of a a Tesla battery uh, to run your home, I think it's called a power bank, when they were first introduced into this country in 2017, it was about $9,000 to put one in your home. Now it's $19,000, the cost right, of the... Right. So we, we're, just, we're just in this point where unless we can increase the supply of lithium, which seems difficult to do, in, in increase it vastly, then the price of it's going to go up and the whole economics falls to pieces, right? Well, it already is falling to pieces, and the world's demand for lithium is already 
caused uh, more than a thousand percent increase in lithium prices in the last eight or nine years, which is one of the big factors, as well as copper prices have gone up. It has to have aluminum prices, which are also in the batteries, manganese and zinc and other metals that are in batteries. This is the, you know, the, the fact that it's important to have in, in mind, and this is just an interesting consequence of becoming very good at manufacturing batteries. The scale of battery manufacturing is already enormous. We don't have to talk about scaling up. It has scaled up. The world produces an astonishing quantity of lithium batteries already. That's why we've had this increased cost because we're demanding a lot more minerals. As it stands now, the manufacturing processes have become so good, automation and the learning curve of the last decade, that to make a battery, the costs are dominated by the materials that is, 60 to 80% of the cost to make a lithium battery is just in buying the metals and materials. So what that put differently, that means that the future cost of batteries is not tied up with you know, new factories or new imaginations. It's tied up with what the mining companies do around the world. And Australia is a big mining company. In fact, it's the number country. It's one of the, mm. it's the number one producer of lithium. The problem is, as I'm doubtless you know, and uh, many people know in Australia is that uh, most of the refining of the lithium into a form that's useful to make batteries occurs in China. China is not just the OPEC of polysilicon <laughs> to make solar modules. It's the OPEC of refining energy minerals into a form useful to make metal, uh, the metals, neodymium for uh, the motors uh, and generators and wind turbines and also for battery chemicals. So you can, look, I. Don't, I'm not in the camp that thinks the metals don't exist in the world. I've always argued against the, you know, the peak oil, peak metal, peak yeah. uranium. And the Malthusians are impossible to tamp down. It's like a whack-a-mole or whack a Malthusian. They just pop up constantly. We're going to run out of stuff. The, the world has plenty of stuff. The problem is how long it takes to open mines and get to the stuff. It's not a, a physical shortage as a resource matter. It's a practical reality, as the International Energy Agency pointed out, the average time to open a new mine globally is 16 years. I think it's a little faster in Australia, maybe a decade or so. Uh, in the United States, it's probably infinite at the moment. And in Canada, it's 10 or 12 years. But around the world, average is 16 years. So we are planning to build things that require the minds of the world to expand by 600 to 6,000% in the next decade or two, but nobody is planning yet to start trying to open the mines or financing them. So this is, it's almost, uh, you know, you, you search for words to express this disconnect between these aspirations and what's actually happening in the industrial world. It's almost infantile. I mean, to say, yeah. we're gonna do this and to pretend that the resources will just magically appear because of the demand. No, they eventually appear, maybe in 50 years, but in the meantime, that kind of demand will cause inflation in those minerals. And if you inflate the cost of copper, you inflate the cost of everything that's made from copper, which is all the traditional appliances and electrical machinery we need in society. Yeah, yeah, and you write, to come to the nub of it, you write in the paper, an energy transition away from society's dependence on hydrocarbons, sorry, is not feasible in right. any meaningful way in any meaningful time frame. It is a dangerous delusion to base policies on the idea that such a transition is possible. Yet that's where we are in this country. We have a government that is basing its policy on that. and. Uh, right. 
I, I, you know, it leaves some of us just lost for words sometimes as to what, 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 what this means. Why can they make such decisions which are just ignoring basically the laws of physics? Well, they're, sort of, they're ignoring also sort of basic laws of behavior and engineering. Some things can't be done in the laws of physics. Some things you just can't accelerate. It's very hard to open a new mine. It takes time. It's, it's like a high inertia. They're big things. They cost billions of dollars. You can interview a mining executive and ask them, how long would it take for you to double or triple your mining capacity? And what are the impediments? Well, there's lots of regulatory impediments to that. It takes years, decades sometimes. The, the why we're having this happen is, this is a question that goes beyond physics and economics. It goes into the psychology so psychology, psychology of narratives and markets. Set, set aside the, and you can set aside the motivation. We all know what the motivation is. It's the belief that we have to do this for climate change. All right, well, you don't have to debate the belief of why it has to happen. You have to wonder why they are so infatuated with the idea that this transition, quote unquote, could happen at a price society can afford at a velocity that they think and worse, that they're believing that it's actually zero emissions. I mean, what, what's lost here is the fact that all of the metals and materials that we have to mine to build these machines, they take, again, on average, you're talking about the, to, across the board, a thousand percent increase in metals and minerals per unit of delivered energy, per unit of heat to heat a house, per unit of mile to drive a vehicle. When you switch to wind and solar and batteries for cars, you increase the call on metals by a thousand percent per mile delivered per unit of heat or light delivered to a residence. That's a massive increase in metals mining for the world, something that hasn't happened in all of history over that short a time frame. Yeah. It's not, in fact, possible to imagine that happening. Yeah, well, let's come, let's come to transport, because, because we put all the emphasis on energy. In most countries, I think they do that right. because it's possibly politically the easiest one to bite off. You know, you don't want to stop people driving cars or... Agriculture is hard as well, but so we focus on the energy sector, but energy from, or carbon emissions that come from transport are considerable. Now, the plan here is to let's all move, move over to electric vehicles, but yes, uh, it turns out that that's not quite so helpful in reducing emissions as we might think. You, you published this graph in your paper, uh, which I should point out is based on data from Volkswagen, so it's reliable yeah. source, you'd think, that yeah. shows electric cars come with a carbon debt of equal, uh, of emit, equal to emitting between 8 and 20 tonnes of CO2. So that debt has to be paid off, as it were. So in effect, it, an electric car has to be driven, I think looking at this graph, for more than 60,000 miles, that's roughly 100,000 kilometres, before you save more carbon than you would if you just picked up a a diesel Hilux out, out of the showroom and drove that off, right? So this is, again, I don't think, why don't we know the, why, why don't we people talk about these facts, debate them, consider whether it is actually so sensible to move to electric vehicles on that basis, or, or should we stay with more efficient forms of petrol and diesel? But we don't have that discussion, do we? No, it's, in fact, it's a revelation to most people. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a reflexive belief that if the tailpipe it doesn't exist, that the vehicle has zero emissions. Well, like, you know, that when you're driving an electric car, while you're driving it, it obviously emits nothing. This is hardly a, a brilliant insight. I mean, it's, 
<laughs> but and as everybody knows, charging the vehicle causes emissions. And that's there's been some discussion about that. And there's been insufficient attention to that in this sense. It matters a lot when you charge a car, what kind of emissions you're causing, because depending on where you are in the country, in your country, in any country, and what time of day you charge it, the actual emissions associated with charging are highly variable. It might be very little. You could be happy to charge it when solar arrays are available, the surplus power. You might be charging it when it's using natural gas or coal. Depends where you are in the world. In China, it would be almost all coal because it's a two-thirds coal-fired grid. But that it turns out that's the least of it. And, and God bless Volkswagen. And Volvo did the same thing, by the way. You can find it at their website. I, it, they didn't make a, much of a hullabaloo uh, putting the study up at their website. But I do, I do think after they got uh, spanked with multi-billion dollar penalties for Dieselgate, the Volkswagen is a little sensitive about policymakers understanding reality. Mm. <laughs> that, that zero emissions vehicles aren't zero emissions. You're simply moving the emissions elsewhere to a different part of the operations of the vehicle. In this case, before you actually drive the vehicle, all the big mining machinery, which is all oil-fired, that digs up all the rocks to make the battery, all of the different machinery that grinds the rocks, all the different chemicals and chemical processes that turns the ore into refined minerals to make the batteries, that entire process is very energy intensive. It leads to, in Volkswagen's case, they, they calculate, and you know, they, they illustrate rather, about 12 tons of CO2 emitted before you drive your first mile with your electric vehicle. And as you point out, after about 60,000 miles or 100,000 kilometers of driving, uh, you, you then manage to begin to save net CO2. That CO2 is not emitted in Australia if you're driving it there. It was emitted mostly in China. If the mining was in Australia, it was in Australia. The refining was in China. If the mining of the cobalt was in Congo, it's that, that share of CO2. But people will look at it and say, well, we'll make it better. Well, for sure, I mean, lots of things get better. But we also know, as the International Energy Agency itself has pointed out in its own unpublicized papers, they release them without any fanfare, that the emissions from making batteries are going up and not down. Because as we mine each new ton of copper, each new ton of manganese, the ore grades, that is the percentage of, of minerals in the rock, has been declining and has been for hundreds of years, mm. which means you dig up more rock, use more energy, emit more CO2. So in fact, it's entirely possible that not only do you not save that much CO2, you, you, do, you do cut emissions. It's not zero. You might cut it 20 or 30 percent. It might even cut it in half, depending on where the materials come from and where you drive the vehicle. But it's also quite probable that five or 10 years from now, that the net effect of using a, uh, an electric vehicle will be to increase global CO2 emissions, just not in Australia. <laughs> I mean, it's why are we having that debate? Well, you know, when I publish stuff like this, and I'm not alone in publishing it, I, I use other people's data. It sort of stays in the political sphere. What's happened is we have this really embarrassing and you know this, it's true in your country, it was true in my homeland, it's true in the United States, my adopted country. We have this bifurcation of energy discussions as political. So if you're, you're, a, a, you're, a, you're a lefty if you like windmills and you're a righty if you like hydrocarbons. You know, energy isn't political except in the sense of the political consequences of not having enough of it cheap enough. But the actual physics of energy is not political. We ought to be able to have this discussion. Yeah. And if we ought, if you, and if we say, look, we're happy, to, the public accepts more expensive energy, more inconvenient cars, and higher CO2 emissions elsewhere, and we don't really care about the pollution caused by mining in Africa or the child labor there. We, I mean, as long as we know about it and say affirmatively, I don't care, 
okay, I could disagree with you morally, but at least you know you're making that decision. I don't think people even know they're making those decisions. Yeah, look, I'm going to put that graph up once again because if, if we can get that up from the production room, it, it, because people it's, need to see this. They need to take this in, the, 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 the effect of this. That, you know, I mean, yeah. commonly people here will buy a car and they'll trade it in after three years uh, for something else. So in that three years, they're unlikely to have done 100,000 kilometres, and uh, especially in an electric vehicle that needs charging up so frequently, I would think. But anyway, it, it, then, so you would, you would have that car, it would sit in your driveway, you'd feel full of virtue and you'd be doing absolutely nothing. You'd be better <laughs> off driving a Hilux. It's extraordinary. If you, if you want well, you've, to, you've already... Go on. <laughs> You've already emitted, you know, you've already emitted 12 or 15 tons of CO2 before when you when you take ownership of it. It's you you own it. You own that CO2. So you better drive that puppy for a couple hundred thousand kilometers to pay back your debt. Well, if, it, if the battery breaks down, well, you know, just that's OK. Yeah. I want to Keep come going. to you for one more question and a redemptive uh, uh, redemptive ending, I hope. But but first of all, uh, if, if anybody <laughs> wants to, to check that graph out for themselves and other great graphs and statistics, go to the appendix section of uh, Mark Mill's uh, paper, The Energy Transition Delusion, Re a Reality Re Reset, published by the Manhattan Institute. That should be enough to find it on Google. It's definitely worth exploring. Mark, for that redemptive ending, like we, we don't like to end with too much doom and gloom, although there's a lot of it around. So, but there is a redemptive ending here, isn't there? There is a solution. There is a, a zero carbon or close to zero carbon form of energy, which is available, the fuel source is available in this country, and the technology right. has come on leaps and bounds. I'm talking about small modular reactors. That's right, isn't right. it? Right. Yeah. Look, I'm a huge fan of nuclear energy in general, always have been. Uh, I worked in the nuclear industry early in my career. I worked for uranium mining and refining company in Canada. I defended the virtues of nuclear energy after Three Mile Island, <laughs> traveling the world, preaching the gospel of the benefits of nuclear energy. It's the single most consequential improvement in reducing our footprint on the planet. Nothing comes close. Rather than increasing by a thousand percent our footprint by going to wind and solar, which is what the materials footprint does, you decrease our materials footprint on the planet by a thousand percent by going nuclear. It's, a, it, it's the only path that makes any sense as uh, a significant share of the world's future electric supply. Not that we'll have zero wind and solar. You know, wind, wind and solar will have a very significant role. In fact, I would dare say, compared to where we are today, it's perfectly reasonable to think that the share of electricity globally, the average, will more than double from where it is today. I mean, today we're only talking uh, the share of world's energy from wind and solar is about 3%. The share of world's electricity from wind and solar is around 8%. It, would be, it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that would double the 16%. That's not, that would be quite something, it would be quite remarkable. Uh, but that's not a transition, that's an addition. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you want to transition a significant share of the world's electricity away from combustion, you're going to use nuclear. And that won't quote, solve any magical problems, but it'll be quite consequential, environmentally, beneficial in that sense. Then the rest of the ecosystem, we just have to be patient. Pe people um, are perfectly, uh, reasonably ex believing that some 
phenomenal changes are possible in the technology of energy supply and use. It's a perfectly reasonable expectation. That's the sort of what's underlying a lot of this. The unreasonable thing is to think of is the velocity of ex the expectation. Big systems that are the size of our, our civilization don't make rapid changes in, in decades, many decades. Like, let me end with you know, a, a, a plus and a minus. The, the minus for those who think we're having a transition is that roughly 20 years and $5 trillion of spending in the Western nations have increased the share of world's energy, you know, from wind and solar from zero, right, as I said, to 3% of the world's energy. But yeah. we get twice as much energy right now globally from burning wood, burning mm. wood, the oldest energy source known to man than we do from wind and solar combined globally. Yeah. So it's a long, slow process, but the new technologies that are emerging and our capacity to innovate because of artificial intelligence, supercomputing in the cloud, which I read about in my book, which is a positive book. I'm very optimistic about these technologies, but they they don't happen overnight. We just have to be patient, and and maybe that's the resource that's in shortest supply politically. Yes. Uh, well, on that note, patience, a deficit of patience, we're certainly <laughs> facing one. Thank you very much, Mark, for your time. We could have gone on, and I'm sure I'd like to return to this with you. Uh, check a few other uh, so-called facts against you uh, down the track. Thank you for joining us. Your paper, The Energy Transition Delusion, A Reality Re Reset, published by the Manhattan Institute, and thank you for joining the Battleground. Your emails and comments now and your attention like mine has been focused on Labour's first budget and what it tells us about the kind of government we're going to get. Jonathan writes, I spend my own money much more efficiently, efficiently than the government and employ much more thought on the wisdom of any expenditure. Government needs to reduce spending rather than continue to invent new taxes. Spoken, well done, Jonathan. Spoken like a disciple of Milton Friedman. I don't think he would have put it better himself. Uh, Kim writes, financial discipline to labour is like a poker machine to a gambling addict. Won't happen. Mm. Uh, Dr. Andres writes, Jim Dr. Doom Chalmers, I like that, is constantly telling us about how bad our budget situation is while it's in relatively good shape. A treasurer's role is to talk up the economy not to sink it. Yeah, I thought that too, listening to the budget on Tuesday night. Pete writes, I have great faith that Labour will stick to its roots. I have placed some retirement offshore to cope with inflation and devaluation. Wise move. John wrote in response to my suggestion that based on the updated budget figures, Jim Chalmers should have aimed at putting the budget back into black. John writes, to put Labour and budget surplus in the same sentence would be an oxymoron, as rare as a unicorn. And Philip writes, why should anyone expect to see again the humming economy that Cater speaks of? Sorry, in what world is this supposed to be possible, with governments here as elsewhere in the developed world hopelessly addicted to big spending? All right, Philip, I get the message, but you can but hope. Keep your emails coming. Nick Cater at ADH.TV. That's Nick Cater at ADH.TV. Thanks to my guests, Mark M. Mills and Amanda Stoker. And thanks again to the miracle workers here at ADH.TV. And thank to you most of all for watching. See you next week.